working out up to this point. Um, it helps with my voice. Appreciate that. Congregation, as we open the scriptures and see the text that is in front of us, we notice that uh, it is in the context of what is classically called the Last Supper. And the word last is, in some contexts, a rather sad word. When Children, if, if your father is going away for a long business trip for a week and he said, well, this is the, the last supper that we are having together for a long time, that would be a sad thing. And uh, there is a certain sadness when the disciples understand from the way Jesus is speaking about this supper that it is going to be the last time that they have this supper together, that is, the last Passover supper, and uh, that he is speaking in the context of, in many ways, of, of leaving them, and that he is returning to his Father. And if you read through the, the conversation that he has in the gospel parallel passages uh, but also, especially in the book of John, the long conversation he has with them, then it becomes very clear to them that Jesus is heading toward the cross. And the supper itself portrays what is going to happen to him, that his body is going to be broken, his blood is going to be shed, that he is going to die. These are all very sad things. And yet, the Lord Jesus wants to be sure that this supper is not wrapped and marinated with sadness, but rather that this supper becomes the beginning of something very new and very good. And so, Jesus has some post-communion reflections with them. We can't go through everything. We'll just use these verses as uh, representative of the post-communion conversation, but uh, maybe for your personal uh, reflection and uh, personal edification, uh, I would uh, recommend that you work your way through the chapters 13 through 17 of John as Jesus gives there a much fuller representation of post-communion reflections. But let us look at this passage, and we notice that in the text, as the text sheds light on the post-communion uh, reflections, that this text has a future perspective. Until, he says, that day, that day is going to be a special day. And he wants them to live from here on with this future perspective of that great coming day shedding its light upon their life. Let's look at Jesus' post-communion reflection 
with that perspective, that future perspective, looking first at the encouragement he gives for future trials, secondly, the assurance he gives them for, of future victory, and that he sings with them of future glory. First of all, then, we notice as we glean from some of these reflections and put them together uh, with respect to the perspective of these two verses, that Jesus encourages his disciples with respect to their future trials. What is it that's going to be a trial for them? Well, quite immediately, there will be the trial uh, and test the, the troubling events of the crucifixion itself. They will leave this, this chamber in which they have this last Passover and first Lord's Supper, uh, the point of transition uh, between, you might say, the Old Testament Passover celebration and the New Testament fulfillment of it. But the fulfillment will require that Jesus goes toward his death. And this is indeed a a sad path to walk with Jesus. Think of the agony of Gethsemane as we heard some of that recorded, how Jesus is agonizing and sad and burdened. But think specifically of what he is portraying before us in the Lord's Supper that his body will be broken, his blood will be shed, and that he says in this, I am going, I am leaving. What a trial this is. In John chapter 16, verse 6, the Lord Jesus senses as he's discussing these things with them that their faces are beginning to droop that their hearts are being saddened as he knows what's going on inside. And he says in John 16, verse 6, But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. And what a tender-hearted Savior. Because he himself is going to walk a path in which his own heart is going to be so sorrowful that he says, I am exceeding sorrowful even unto death, like he was saying, I am so sad and so burdened in my soul that I could almost lay down and die right here. So pressed he was in spirit. And yet at this point, in the mealtime, he is speaking to them, knowing their sorrow and encouraging them by saying, your sorrow is soon going to be turned into joy. What a prospect. He encourages them with respect to the trial that is going to take place in connection with his crucifixion. We notice that Jesus also, through this conversation and the perspective that he places, this future perspective that he places on this conversation, also with our text, that Jesus is also speaking with respect to their future journey and their future ministry. Jesus wants to equip them and encourage them with respect to the ministry beyond his crucifixion, resurrection, 
and they're sending out. He is going to encourage them and equip them with respect to that journey so that they do not, after his suffering, walk around with droopy faces and limp hands and defeated outlooks. As, for instance, he confronted the men on the way to Emmaus and said to them, after his resurrection, why are you sad? He does not want his disciples to go on beyond his suffering and resurrection as sad disciples. And so he already equips them by predicting what is going to happen and predicting also of his resurrection and the future that is going to come. After all, it is like the pattern of the Exodus. When the Passover took place, and the lamb's blood was sprinkled on the door that night, the family equipped themselves for the journey by having their shoes on. They had their shoes on, they had their coat on, they had their staff in their hand. In other words, they were ready for a journey. And Jesus wants us to be ready for the journey especially those who have been liberated from the bondage of sin, from the weight of guilt. He wants his disciples to be equipped to journey beyond the exodus, to be equipped and also as the Passover meal strengthened them, fed them, and gave them strength for the journey So the Lord would want us to be fed and strengthened spiritually so that we would take the journey on the way to the far better promised land, that heavenly place where he will be with them in his Father's kingdom. Onward, encouraged and equipped. Well, let us look specifically then at the possible trials that will come their way. And we, we think about this, and we have mentioned also the trial uh, that will come when he dies and when he is buried. There will be the temptation of fear and faithlessness that comes their way. And as we read the, the following passage that was read, then Jesus already speaks of that, doesn't he? All ye shall be offended because of me this night. And he is even arrested. At that point already, they are tempted and stumble into fear and faithlessness. They, they run. The shepherd is struck, and the sheep are scattered. Well, this was all to take place in the sovereign plan of God because Jesus, after all, was going to be the only one who could provide a redemptive sacrifice for sin. And he released the disciples in his sovereignty, but they acted in accordance with their own state. And it was fear that they would be arrested too, and so they they ran. The sheep were scattered But the shepherd alone was left to do the suffering 
as he sovereignly wanted to do. But nevertheless, this week, there may be the the sad uh, occurrences of circumstances in our life, the news of a sickness or a trouble, a trial, a difficulty, a work, or whatever it is in our life that comes our way. And we may be tempted to fear. Well, if you just think of the pandemic, how much fear has not been stirred by that? Are we motivated by fear? Will we be tempted to stumble through fear? Let us rather go forward encouraged, strengthened, and equipped to proceed, not by fear, but to walk by faith. As we just sang, I will walk before His face. There is a temptation to stumble into sin and compromise in weakness. Jesus discussed this with them in the passage we see here. Not only will you be frightened, but Peter's uh, denial was even predicted. I want to turn to Luke 22, the parallel passage. It is uh, quite particularly described there in Luke 22, verse 31. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you. And uh, the King James does help us here because here it is the plural, you. In other words, the Lord Jesus is saying to all, though he's speaking to Simon, he's saying, this is something which applies to all of you disciples. Satan wants to have you all. What a warning. In a sense, the Lord also cautions us, especially if you have been with the Lord at his table. He has, Satan has, his eye on you, and he would want to sift you. We know that. We know his devices, that we can be on a spiritual high and yet vulnerable in the week after. And so the Lord would caution us. And he knows what is going to happen. He knows not only that Satan is going to be sifting all of the disciples, but then he turns to Peter because there's a special trial that Peter is going to face. I have prayed for thee, the singular pronoun there, thee. Peter needed special pastoral attention by the Lord Jesus because he was going to be sifted in a very personal and very severe way. And what do we think? Do we think that we will not be tempted in the same way? There may be circumstances in which we will be tempted to deny what we confessed here. How will we go on? There will be dangers afoot. And will we say with Peter, not I? Will we say with a self-confidence, even if everyone else flees 
and forsakes. I'm willing to die for the Lord. And as the Lord would warn his disciples, he would want them to be equipped not with self-confidence, not with arrogance, not with pride, but equipped with faith in him and his faithfulness. How will we ever persevere in the face of the attacks of Satan and the trials that will come? Not in our strength, but faith in him. He is faithful, who has promised. And what a blessing that he has promised to pray for such as Peter, that his faith stays intact. It may be stumbling as to its activity, but intact as to its essence. How will we ever persevere unto the end? Believer, you sat at the Lord's table, and your heart was directed to the Lord to rest wholly in Him for your righteousness, for your forgiveness. The finished work of the Savior is the basis and the continuing work of the Savior in us and through us and sustaining us is our hope for the future. The Lord at his table and also in these post-communion reflections warns but encourages, cautions but equips. He predicts even, but he prays for his own. What a blessing. But secondly, we see here that the Lord does not only encourage his disciples with respect to their future trials, he also gives them the assurance of their future victory. He says to them, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And that is his promise to believers. How rich that is. The fruit of the vine that he speaks of here is indeed the wine. There are those who have taken what is here the poetic word or poetic description of uh, wine, and they have tried with all kinds of uh, interpretation to take the alcohol out of the grape juice. But uh, after further study, I'm quite convinced and satisfied that it was alcoholic wine that the Lord Jesus used at that time. And uh, without uh, that being the case, uh, the wine surely uh, would be significant if it was simply grape juice, uh, but we needn't go into all of that. It was the ceremonial wine that they used at the Passover, and ceremonial wine was then also used by the Lord and set aside for the New Testament purpose. Now, Jesus is saying that he will not drink this ceremonial wine. Uh, He will not drink of this because he is going to his death. And he will be taken away from them. And though there are some meals that take place, 
uh, in his resurrection appearances, there is not, as we understand, a repetition of a Passover meal, nor even at that time of the Lord's Supper, until after, when on the day of Pentecost, the church gathers again. So what Jesus is pointing to is the fact that this ceremonial Lord's Supper will have its perfect fulfillment in heaven, in the Father's perfect fulfilled kingdom, and that he is giving these disciples the assurance, those who trust in him, those who are his, those for whom he prays in his high priestly prayer also in John 17, he assures them, you will be with me, and I will celebrate that feast with you. What a blessed assurance that Jesus gives to his disciples. And he extends that also to the believers who were celebrating this morning with us at this table. He will be with you that day. And how, as we think of the journey between now and then, and we think of our weakness, and we think of how prone we are to forget and to stumble, we would say, surely with the uh, men on the way to Emmaus, as, as their hearts were burning within them and he's speaking to them on the way, that we would want to say to the Lord Jesus, Lord, abide with us. Abide with us, fast falls the eventide. And he exhorts his disciples in chapter 15 of, of John, Abide in me and I in you. But how we need his help in order for that abiding union to continue between us and him. With me, he says. He's the Emmanuel. He came down from heaven to be God with us. What an amazing miracle of grace. And then he came into the human flesh and he came into the position where the guilt of his people came upon them and, and he died in the midst of sinners. He surely came to be with us. In fact, he went where we ought to be that we would be with him where we surely don't deserve to be. What precious words they are, if you think of it. With you. You with me in my Father's kingdom. He gives them this assurance of the victory meal to come. Something to look forward to, for sure. And there will be then a new feast. Yes, it will be new, it will be perfect, it will be heavenly. New because then there will be no bitterness. The Passover meal had these bitter herbs, and, uh, and he, he dipped the sop and gave it to Judas. But he gave his people 
the cup of blessings, with the promise of blessings and sweetness, and yet there is still in this life that struggle that we have. There is still something of the bitterness in the wine of the blessings. But then, then there will be a holy new feast in the Father's kingdom. And the drinking and the eating will be without any bitterness. There will be no fear of a looming death, of a coming departure of this beloved Savior. There will be no talk about the possibility of a betrayer in the midst of the congregation because we have to admit something of that cloud still sort of hangs as we would even at times when we fail ask ourselves, Lord, is it I? But then, no, then it will be new. There will be nothing of that. There will be no discussion as Jesus discusses with his disciples and says, in the world you will have tribulation. No, then that will be all past. No future persecution, no sorrow, no sighing, no doubts, no fears. Then everything about the meal will be joy and celebration. It will be celebration of a perfect newness, for then the believer himself and herself will be completely new. Yes, in our regeneration, we are new, and much of our perspective of life becomes new. We are new creatures, but there is still so much of the old nature in this life. But then everything will be new, and we will be celebrating in a holy, new, and perfect way. And so this is the assurance that the Lord Jesus gives in our text to his disciples, that on that day he will drink this cup, this celebratory cup, in a whole new way. It will be a whole new celebration in his Father's perfect kingdom. It is, it is as if the Lord Jesus is saying, fear not. You will be going through a valley of tears. You will be traveling along a journey which will have all kinds of difficulties, the crucifixion and the sad Saturday, so to speak, but then there will be joy the joy of resurrection day, which is a foretaste of the perfect joy of heaven. He is pointing them forward to the future, a blessed future. He is looking beyond his death and resurrection. Yes, the Lord himself at the table is anticipating beyond his suffering the time that the Father will give him as he is exalted in all his glory, with his disciples. These are Jesus' reflections, his post-communion reflections. And what will we be reflecting on this week? What will we be thinking of? What are your th 
post-communion thoughts as you review Jesus' reflections. Believers, you have come to the table possibly with, with certain hesitations and questions. Do you realize that these words are the Savior's words of assurance also to you? Embrace them. Drink in the cup of blessings that he has handed you. Receive them in faith. This is his promise. He is faithful. Oh, yes, you are troubled and fearful about your own unfaithfulness, but he is faithful who has promised, who will surely do it. This table below is a seal of his promise that one day he will be with you and you with him at that feast. Some of you may not have attended. I do not know you. The Lord knows, though, why you struggled and were hesitant. Some may not have have come because they are not yet confessing members, understandably then. But are you prayerfully doing what you can, prayerfully looking to the Lord in order to be equipped? Because whether or not you have made confession, you are going to go through life's journeys, and you also are going to be sifted, and you are going to be troubled and tried. What are you going to do? How are you going to go on if you have not yet professed or believed or confessed that you need the Lord? How will you stand against the sifting of Satan because he desires to have you all if you do not have the Lord Jesus with you and you with him by faith in him? Without him, we will perish surely. Others may have had different motivations and and different struggles and trials, but I hope it wasn't because you were careless about your soul. Did you say, well, that's for others and not for me? Are you saying that you're careless about whether or not you have a Savior? Oh, how you need to wake up. If Jesus said to these disciples, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. If that's true as a caution to believers who do trust in him, how will you stand in the day of trial? And surely how will you stand in the day, that day, when he comes again? Because he is going to come again. He is 100% sure, even before he went to the cross, that he is going to be exalted, that he will be glorified with his Father in heaven, with the glory that he had before he came. Read his prayer in John 17, and he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Whether or not you believe it, he's coming. How will you ever stand 
without Jesus as your Savior. Reflect on that. And may it also be such a weighty consideration that you cannot go on one day any longer without fleeing to this Jesus and committing yourself wholly to him. Confessing members may have stayed away. I do not know what kind of questions may have troubled you. Is it because there's a secret sin that you're hanging on to and you do not want to let it go? You had better consider, reflect seriously whether you would rather die with that sin and forfeit this heaven with him for that temporary, fleeting, idolatrous affection or possession or pleasure. Reflect on that because that is a foolish exchange. Selling your soul for a bit of money. Imagine, that's what Judas did. For 30 pieces of silver, he betrayed the master who had called him friend, who had beckoned him with the compassion of a good shepherd, and he turned his back. And how long did he enjoy 30 pieces of silver? Not very long. It meant nothing to him after a while. He was so convicted with regret, but not moved with repentance, that he just threw the money away and ended it. Satan had him. What a serious thought to have an idolatrous affection and a, an idolatrous love for money to sell your soul for that. Oh, how that calls you to reflect seriously and to repent immediately. Go to this Savior, and the moment you repent, He is ready to receive you, and you may take home at that moment this assurance that you will be with him and he will be with you. But don't go down life another day without him. A brother or sister, repent. Harden not your heart. Well, those who sincerely attended and reflected with us in the meaning of the, this, the breaking of the bread and the wine. And take home with you this blessed assurance of Jesus, this assurance of future victory, because he did go to the cross. He did die, and he did proclaim it is finished, and his Father was pleased with that, and he arose from the grave and he ascended into heaven. He's victorious. And one day, he will share his victory with you.
Isn't that something to sing about? Isn't that something to praise God about? Amazing grace it is indeed. And so our third point is that the Lord, in thinking about this and contemplating this, He follows through in the pattern of the Lord's Supper and sings the Halal Psalms with them. Those are the psalms that at least include 113 through 118. I've tried to include some of them, the psalters that we have been singing. It's worthy of meditating on together. What a wonderful gift singing is. We experience that as a congregation with a choir performance. And and really, this, this meditation... And this text, verse 30, when they had sung an hymn, needs to inspire us to go into the week with the joy of the Lord, inspiring us to lift up our voice in song. How appropriate it is to sing. And every Bible scholar who seriously deals with this, of course, will not stumble over the word hymn, but will immediately admit that this is part of the Hallel section. It is singing praise that they did. They sang praise. They sang of the joy of the Lord and of the victory. Can we say anything about what they sang? Yes. As I mentioned, it was very likely part of the Hallel, maybe the, the latter section of the Hallel, this 115 to 118, in connection with the third cup of the, the Passover meal. And just think of it, that Jesus was singing about his own crucifixion. The stone which the builders rejected is become the chief cornerstone. And all of these marvelous things that the Lord has done and that the church has rejoiced in, even by way of prophetic foresight, looking forward to the time, how much more we in the New Testament can sing about the finished work of Jesus Christ through these songs. Well, there's some lessons about this singing. First of all, we can conclude from this that singing is an element of New Testament worship. We have it on the authority of Christ's institution of this New Testament element of worship, the Lord's Supper, and tying to it singing. They sang a hymn and then went out. So, New Testament worship includes the essential element also of singing. There is something about singing that goes deeper than even listening and speaking. There is no better means by which to express unified praise to God than for a gathering of believers to be united in song. I hope that that you agree. I enjoy the singing part of worship. It, it, it sometimes even chokes you up. Uh, I was mentioning to some that you, you, you sense the words go in and come out in a way that is even deeper than you could speak them. Uh, 
Singing, thirdly, enables the whole congregation to respond to the word preached. There is this covenant interaction between the God who supplies and the congregation who is receiving. And there's this covenant exchange where God speaks to us and then we respond, we reply to Him in singing as well as prayer. And so, there is this covenant interaction by which the whole congregation can respond to the word preached. Uh, Fourth principle that we can say is that Jesus confirms the inspiration of the book of the Psalms because He takes the songs of the Old Testament Psalms upon His own lips and sings them. Jesus sets an important precedent also and confirms the use of the Psalms for New Testament worship. Well, there are these various principles, but the center of it is Jesus joins the church in the joy of the future victory that will be accomplished by His own death and resurrection. Hallelujah. What does that mean? They are called Hallel Psalms because in in the Hebrew there is this hallelujah that most often starts the psalm. Praise Jehovah. Praise Jehovah. And Jesus is in the midst of this song, as he is actually in the midst of every song of the Bible. On the way to the Mount of Olives, when they had sung in him, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Jesus went with his disciples, facing his suffering. And as he did so, Jesus faced the suffering in its deepest agony in his heart as it pressed out of him the bloody sweat, and then he he faced his arrest, and then he went on to his suffering of crucifixion. But he did it for his people. And he warned them indeed that they were going to face suffering also. But here's the beauty of it. Jesus suffers the curse of affliction so that the curse of affliction will be removed from their affliction. There is that um, point made in one of the articles of the Westminster Confession that part of Christian liberty is that he saves his people from the curse of affliction from the the negative impact like the affliction of the believer is not punishment for their sin it may be chastening it may be purging it may have sanctifying purposes whom the lord loveth he chasteneth well these afflictions are ahead for the church And the olive press 
is in the midst of the Mount of Olives, and, and all the fruit of the trees, of the olive trees, is brought to, to bear, and the pressure squeezes the juice. And this, this has been seen as, as the context that anticipates how Jesus is being pressed in his heart and spirit until the blood oozes out of his pores. There is that amount of, of stress upon him while his disciples go free. It's an amazing picture. And Jesus asked, if you want me, if it is me you want to arrest, let these go. Jesus sets them free, and he is taken captive. And for that also, we may sing. We may sing amazing grace. We may sing about his great suffering for us. And as we go home, it is important not to forget that we, we are called upon to remember our Savior. Do this in remembrance of him. Remember him. Who en- he who entered the olive press of affliction to provide the price of our forgiveness and to take away the curse from our affliction and the sting of death and the victory of the grave. What a blessed Redeemer. Let it be inspiration for our song of thanksgiving. And let that singing inspire our whole life to become a song of thanks living. Thanksgiving through thanks living as we go into this week. You say, well, I I feel I cannot sing. I, I cannot really live praise. No, you can't, not on your own. But when you have the Lord in your heart, And when you drink in the blessed promises of the gospel as they're signified and sealed, and as the Lord applies these things to your heart, I do not know how you can keep from speaking praise and singing praise. It will be brought out of you. Well, think of the great burden of anguish that Jesus faced. You say, I have so many troubles facing me this week, and I have so many hesitations. Well, Jesus did too, and yet he sang with his disciples because there is still something to sing about, even in the midst of the trials. And so let us be thankful. He glorified God by loving others. If he so loved us, we are called also to go into this week giving him praise and glory. If he so loved us, we ought also to love one another. May our whole life be a life of praise to him. And remember, you're not going alone. He promises he will be with you That's what he said when he left, when he ascended into, Behold, I am with you even unto the end of the world. 
Therefore go, sing his praise, live his praise, speak his praise. To God alone be the glory. Amen.